Book Four, Chapter Fifteen of the Late Mister Jonathan Wild the Great. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Dennis Sayers. The Late Mister Jonathan Wild the Great by Henry Fielding. Book Four, Chapter Fifteen. The Character of Our Hero, and the Conclusion of This History. We will now endeavor to draw the character of this great man and by bringing together those several features as it were of his mind which lie scattered up and down in this history to present our readers with a perfect picture of greatness jonathan wilde had every qualification necessary to form a great man as his most powerful and predominant passion was ambition so nature had with consummate propriety adapted all his faculties to the attaining those glorious ends to which this passion directed him he was extremely ingenious in inventing designs artful in contriving the means to accomplish his purposes and resolute in executing them for as the most exquisite cunning and most undaunted boldness qualified him for any undertaking so was he not restrained by any of those weaknesses which disappoint the views of mean and vulgar souls and which are comprehended in one general term of honesty which is a corruption of honesty a word derived from what the greeks call an ass he was entirely free from those low vices of modesty and good nature which as he said implied a total negation of human greatness and were the only qualities which absolutely rendered a man incapable of making a considerable figure in the world his lust was inferior only to his ambition but as for what simple people call love he knew not what it was his avarice was immense but it was of the rapacious not of the tenacious kind his rapaciousness was indeed so violent that nothing ever contented him but the whole for however considerable the share was which his coadjutors allowed him of the booty he was restless in inventing means to make himself master of the smallest pittance reserved by them. He said laws were made for the use of prigs only, and to secure their property. They were never, therefore, more perverted than when their edge was turned against these. But that this generally happened through their want of sufficient dexterity the character which he most valued himself upon and which he principally honoured in others was that of hypocrisy his opinion was that no one could carry priggism very far without it for which reason he said there was little greatness to be expected in a man who acknowledged his vices but always much to be hoped from him who professed great virtues wherefore though he would always shun the person whom he discovered guilty of a good action 
yet he was never deterred by a good character, which was more commonly the effect of profession than of action, for which reason he himself was always very liberal of honest professions, and had as much virtue and goodness in his mouth as a saint, never in the least scrupling to swear by his honour, even to those who knew him the best. Nay, though he held good nature and modesty in the highest contempt, he constantly practised the affectation of both, and recommended this to others, whose welfare on his own account he wished well to. He laid down several maxims as these certain methods of attaining greatness, to which, in his own pursuit of it, he constantly adhered, as, number one, never to do more mischief to another than was necessary to the effecting his purpose, for that mischief was too precious a thing to be thrown away. Number two, to know no distinction of men from affection, but to sacrifice all with equal readiness to his interest. Number three, never to communicate more of an affair than was necessary to the person who was to execute it. Number four, not to trust him who hath deceived you, nor who knows he hath been deceived by you. Number five, to forgive no enemy, but to be cautious and often dilatory in revenge. Number six, to shun poverty and distress, and to ally himself as close as possible to power and riches. Number seven, to maintain a constant gravity in his countenance and behavior, and to affect wisdom on all occasions. Number eight, to foment eternal jealousies in his gang, one of another. Number nine, never to reward any one equal to his merit, but always to insinuate that the reward was above it. Number ten, that all men were knaves or fools, and much the greater number, a composition of both. Number eleven, that a good name, like money, must be parted with, or at least greatly risked, in order to bring the owner any advantage. Number twelve, that virtues, like precious stones, were easily counterfeited, that the counterfeits, in both cases, adorned the wearer equally, and that very few had knowledge or discernment sufficient to distinguish the counterfeit jewel from the real. Number thirteen, that many men were undone by not going deep enough in roguery, as in gaming any man may be a loser who doth not play the whole game. Number fourteen, that men proclaim their own virtues as shopkeepers expose their goods in order to profit by them. Number fifteen, that the heart was the proper seat of hatred, and the countenance of affection and friendship. He had many more of the same kind, 
all equally good with these, and which were, after his decease, found in his study, as the twelve excellent and celebrated rules were in that of King Charles I, for he never promulgated them in his lifetime, not having them constantly in his mouth, as some grave persons have the rules of virtue and morality, without paying the least regard to them in their actions, whereas our hero, by a constant and steady adherence to his rules in conforming everything he did to them, acquired, at length, a settled habit of walking by them, till at last he was in no danger of inadvertently going out of the way, and by these means he arrived at that degree of greatness which few have equalled, none, we may say, have exceeded, for though it must be allowed that there have been some few heroes who have done greater mischiefs to mankind, such as those who have betrayed the liberty of their country to others, or have undermined and overpowered it themselves, or conquerors who have impoverished, pillaged, sacked, burnt, and destroyed the countries and cities of their fellow-creatures, from no other provocation than that of glory, that is, as the tragic poet calls it, a privilege to kill, a strong temptation to do bravely ill. Yet, if we consider it in the light wherein actions are placed in this line, Laetius est, quoties magno tibi constat honestum, when we see our hero, without the least assistance or pretense, setting himself at the head of a gang which he had not any shadow of right to govern, if we view him maintaining absolute power and exercising tyranny over a lawless crew, contrary to all law but that of his own will, if we consider him setting up an open trade publicly, in defiance not only of the laws of his country, but of the common sense of his countrymen, if we see him first contriving the robbery of others, and again the defrauding the very robbers of that booty which they had ventured their necks to acquire, and which, without any hazard, they might have retained, here sure he must appear admirable, and we may challenge not only the truth of history, but also the latitude of fiction to equal his glory. Nor had he any of those flaws in his character, which, though they have been commended by weak writers, have, as I hinted in the beginning of this history, by the judicious reader, been censured and despised. Such was the clemency of Alexander and Caesar, which nature had so grossly erred in giving them, as a painter would, who should dress a peasant in robes of state, or give the nose, or any other feature, of a Venus to a satyr. What had the destroyers of mankind, that glorious pair, one of whom came into the world to usurp the dominion and abolish the constitution of his own country, the other to conquer, enslave, 
and rule over the whole world, at least as much as was well known to him, and the shortness of his life would give him leave to visit. What had, I say, such as these to do with clemency? Who cannot see the absurdity and contradiction of mixing such an ingredient with those noble and great qualities I have before mentioned. Now, in Wilde, everything was truly great, almost without alloy, as his imperfections, for surely some small ones he had, were only such as served to denominate him a human creature, of which kind none ever arrived at consummate excellence. But surely his whole behaviour to his friend Hartfree is a convincing proof that the true iron or steel greatness of his heart was not debased by any softer metal. Indeed, while greatness consists in power, pride, insolence, and doing mischief to mankind, to speak out, while a great man and a great rogue are synonymous terms, so long shall Wilde stand unrivaled on the pinnacle of greatness. Nor must we omit here, as the finishing of his character, what indeed ought to be remembered on his tomb or his statue, the conformity, above mentioned, of his death to his life, and that Jonathan Wilde the Great, after all his mighty exploits, was what so few great men can accomplish. Hang by the neck till he was dead. Having thus brought our hero to his conclusion, it may be satisfactory to some readers, for many, I doubt not, carry their concern no farther than his fate, to know what became of Hartfree. We shall acquaint them, therefore, that his sufferings were now at an end, that the good magistrate easily prevailed for his pardon, nor was contented till he had made him all the reparation he could for his troubles, though the share he had in bringing these upon him was not only innocent, but from its motive laudable. He procured the restoration of the jewels from the man-of-war at her return to England, and, above all, omitted no labour to restore Hartfree to his reputation, and to persuade his neighbours, acquaintance, and customers of his innocence. When the commission of bankruptcy was satisfied, Hartfree had a considerable sum remaining, for the diamond presented to his wife was of prodigious value, and infinitely recompensed the loss of those jewels which Miss Straddle had disposed of. He now set up again in his trade. Compassion for his unmerited misfortunes brought him many customers among those who had any regard to humanity, and he hath, by industry joined with parsimony, amassed a considerable fortune. His wife and he are now grown old, in the purest love and friendship, but never had another child. Friendly married his elder daughter at the age of nineteen, 
and became his partner in trade. As to the younger, she never would listen to the addresses of any lover, not even of a young nobleman, who offered to take her with two thousand pounds, which her father would have willingly produced, and indeed did his utmost to persuade her to the match. But she refused absolutely, nor would give any other reason, when Hartfree pressed her, than that she had dedicated her days to his service, and was resolved no other duty should interfere with that which she owed the best of fathers, nor prevent her from being the nurse of his old age. Thus Hartfree, his wife, his two daughters, his son-in-law, and his grandchildren, of which he hath several, live altogether in one house, and that with such amity and affection towards each other, that they are, in the neighbourhood, called the family of love. As to all the other persons mentioned in this history, in the light of greatness, they had all the fate adapted to it, being every one hanged by the neck, save two, viz. Miss Theodosia Snap, who was transported to America, where she was pretty well married, reformed, and made a good wife, and the Count, who recovered of the wound he had received from the hermit, and made his escape into France, where he committed a robbery, was taken, and broke on the wheel. Indeed, whoever considers the common fate of great men must allow they well deserve, and hardly earn, that applause which is given them by the world. For when we reflect on the labours and pains, the cares, disquietudes, and dangers which attend their road to greatness, we may say, with the divine, that a man may go to heaven with half the pains which it costs him to purchase hell. To say the truth, the world have this reason, at least, to honour such characters as that of Wilde, that, while it is in the power of every man to be perfectly honest, not one in a thousand is capable of being a complete rogue, and few indeed there are who, if they were inspired with the vanity of imitating our hero, would not, after much fruitless pains, be obliged to own themselves inferior to Mr. Jonathan Wilde, the Great. The End End of Book 4, Chapter 15 And End of The Late Mr. Jonathan Wilde the Great by Henry Fielding. The sound clips used in these recordings were released into the public domain by Stefan at the website pdsounds.org. The intro music is called LibriVox Theme Detuned Piano, and the outro music is entitled La Boheme Musical Box. Read by Dennis Sayers in Modesto, California for LibriVox.